just like to ask you as we get started here, how much do you think that money affects your life? Chances are it probably affects you more than you realize, for better or for worse. And when we have been making our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, last week, kind of at the heart of this book, you find these uh, principles for the basics of a worshipful life in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. But when you come to beginning at verse 8, Solomon is going to address one of the most alluring alternative gods that has been in existence, literally has captured the hearts of billions of people over the years, and that is the alternative god of money. And you might want to remember this, who or what you love will determine how you live. Who or what you love will determine how you live. And there is so much attention given in the Bible to this issue of wealth and of money, and especially loving it. For instance, in the New Testament, 16 of Jesus' 38 parables deal with the issue of money and possessions. When you look at, uh, for instance, how much attention is given to hell and heaven with Jesus' words, did you know that he spoke more about money than either of those concepts combined? Uh, did you know there's five times many more verses on money and possessions than are, are on prayer and faith? There are about 500 verses uh, that deal with like prayer and faith in the New Testament. There are over 2,000 verses that deal with finances and material goods. And you might wonder, why all the discussion? Why so much um, rhetoric and points being made about money and possessions? Perhaps Jesus said it best when he said this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, you can know that's where your heart is as well. And uh, you can find this, that how you deal with money and your possessions is perhaps the single greatest indicator of your true spiritual state. And so let's take a look at what Solomon has to say about this alternative God. How in the world do we live in a world that is just seemingly controlled by money? And beginning in verse 8, he's going to give us these three realities that you and I really have to come to terms with. And the very first one found in verses 8 and 9 is that he presents to us the corruption that comes from the love of money. Let's take a look at it. Verse 8, he says... If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. And what he's talking about here is how wealth seemingly corrupts those who should be giving justice and treating well those who are righteous, behaving correctly in a province. In actuality, what you find is often there is the exploitation of these people. It's almost as if in verses 1 through 7, Solomon was at the temple, and he's watching the worshipers. And then in verse 8, he goes and takes step foot into city hall. And instead of righteousness and a care for the poor and making sure that things are done well, actually you've got... Folks, instead of getting a fair hearing, are all tied up in red tape and bureaucracy. All the while, these same individuals, their pockets are getting lined with people's money. And verse 9 is kind of an interesting verse. Hard to necessarily figure out exactly what he's after. I'll tell you what I think. Uh, 
When he talks about a king who cultivates the fields as an advantage to the land, I think what he's saying there, it's better to have an organized government, even with its corruption, and have a king than to have anarchy, where literally mob rules. And, you know, he's, he's not saying, hey, it's fine that there's all these dishonest people, dishonest people taking pe- uh, advantage of folks. What Solomon is doing is he knows very well the human heart. We are a fallen people. We live in a fallen world. And we behave like sinful individuals. And he's showing that right there in verse 9. And I want you to know that the love of money drives this kind of behavior. I want you to know that around the world, whether it be a county or a city official or somebody in a community or at a national level, there is corruption. Uh, For instance, don't be thinking about other countries. I want you to think specifically about your country. And if you're a citizen of the United States... Think about just how often it comes up that there is somebody, some city official, and they're siphoning funds off for themselves or others. Think about it at a national level, where we might have a national leader, and they set up some sort of an agreement, not to benefit the citizens of the country they represent, but to benefit themselves or their supporters. What drives this kind of behavior? It's the alternative god of money. And what he's doing, he's casting this big warning that you're going to find corruption when you find the love of money. Now, don't forget what he said in Ecclesiastes 3.17. God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. God is going to, at one point, make every wrong right. Every act of injustice, God is one day going to address. But in the meantime, we're going to live in a world that God allows corruption to exist. And it exists because of the love of money. And if you want to know what does it look like when God really straightens out all the records, all you have to do is read the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20, and he spells it out. So you need to know something. You need to understand the reality that there is going to be corruption because of the love of money. Let me show you something else in verses 10 through 17. The consequences that can come from the love of money are being spelled out. And what, what Solomon is going to do, it's he is going to demolish the myths that we believe about wealth. He's going to take it head on. I want you to know that uh, Solomon does not soft pedal. If you're looking for a candy-coated uh, sermon on finances, something to just make you feel good, Solomon does not deliver. He gives direct, straight truth. And he's going to confront what does it look like when you're loving money, and that has become your God. I don't know if you remember this. In January of 2002, there was a story that kind of hit the news of a 62-year-old man who checked himself into a, an emergency room in uh, western, southwestern France. And he was complaining about stomach problems. The family members that came with this man said that, you know, uh, he's had to go to the emergency room before, and it's because he, he has just kind of this inclination to literally eat money like he takes coins and he swallows them and they've had to extract some coins before and he's complaining that his stomach really is hurting him so uh you know i mean many of our er doctors yeah they x-ray what's that problem my stomach hurts me okay so they do an x-ray on this guy and here is the x-ray they had found that this man had swallowed a whole bunch of coins and so large was this uh, the amount of coins that he swallowed. you see that kind of opaque mass there it literally forced his stomach into his hips. 
They eventually did an operation on this guy. And when they cut him open and they took his stomach out, they found that he had 350 coins that he had swallowed. I mean, that is just like, whoa. And this guy eventually died uh, from complications, uh, as you might imagine, from such a severe issue. And the doctor said this guy has a very rare condition that he feels compelled to eat money. And you're like, oh, man, that is crazy. I would never do that. In fact, we tell our kids, or you should, hey, those coins, don't put them in your mouth. And if you're not doing that, please do everybody a favor. I don't want to have another one of these, okay? So we don't want our kids to eat the money, right? But I want to just ask you, are you consuming wealth? Now, I'm not talking necessarily literally, but has wealth become your God? For instance, you know that you and I are spiritual beings. We're actually created for God, designed to know him, to love him, to experience his joy in life. And yet so often what happens is it's the trinkets of the world. It's what the world offers, this alternative God. Really, this whole idea of spirituality, you trusting in God and Jesus. I tell you what, that's just a bunch of nonsense. That's, that's a crutch for the weak, right? And it offers an alternative God. And it says that money can buy you whatever you need. It's like we are mesmerized by this mirage. We keep returning time and time again to this empty dream that money and possessions will give me meaning and joy. Yeah, we've heard some folks that says that really isn't the case, but we don't really believe it. And when you love money more than you really love God, this makes sense. Even if it, you know, like, well, I know that the Bible tells us that about loving money, it's, it's not great or whatever, but I am convinced in my heart of hearts, this is what I need. I mean, think about it. When life goes wrong, where do you turn? So, for instance, your marriage completely unravels. And maybe this lady goes, you know, if I would have just had a bigger house, you know, things would have been better. A guy slips into depression. And what does he do? I don't know why I've got, I, I got to turn to my God. What I need, I need a nice vehicle. And they go spend money that they don't have. And they buy themselves some fancy vehicle because after all, there was an ad on TV. And you mean I don't have to start paying on this till next month? Oh, how about that? So they spend money that they don't have. And they go and make these investments. Why? Because, you see, the God of money says, listen, I'll take care of you. You just need more stuff. You need more money. Or you see, like, man, you look at your wife and like, we're losing the kids. What do we need to do? We need to shower them with gifts. We need to buy them stuff that they don't need. And so we do. We buy them stuff that ultimately really is not helpful, may even destroy them. But after all, if money is your God and you love it, that's the answer that it gives. And very simply, wealth is not the answer. And so what Solomon is going to do is he's going to confront the myths that are driven by the love of money. And this is what you need to know about loving money. Look at verse 10. Loving money never satisfies. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. You will never be happy. What happens is the love of money says you need more and more. It can never deliver. And yet your dreams are all tied. If I just had more money or more income or this kind of worked out and my investments just took off to a whole new level, then I'm going to be happy. Then I'm going to be significant. Then I'm going to have a sense of well-being and identity. And the problem with money is that you're never satisfied. The problem with money, now money is just neutral. 
The problem is when you love it. It's your focus. It owns your heart. Very interesting. The Bible never condemns wealth or having wealth. What it does is it directly assaults loving money. You see that in the text? Take a look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul wrote this, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. It's not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Literally, money calls you, have me, focus on me, desire me, think about me, orient your life around me. And you literally can walk away from the faith. That's what the warning is here. You see, greed and materialism have no built-in safeguards. There are no satisfying limits. Like, well, if I have this much, then I can be satisfied. I can provide for the needs of me and my family. We can kind of move forward in health with reason. Oh, no. It's kind of like this perpetual cycle, okay? You need more. And And the Bible never attacks having wealth. What it attacks is being driven by greed It is to love money. And so it's kind of like this illusion that so many people live by. It's this. uh, How much will it really take to satisfy me? And the answer, just a little bit more. How much? Well, just a little bit more than what you've got. And then let's say you you get that promotion and you actually get some more income. And then I, well, I just need a, a little bit more. I need to hit the next level. That's kind of like a gambler. So is the materialist. You're just never satisfied. You know, gambling, it's like an addiction. And you just keep pouring money that you don't have into things that are just going to ultimately destroy you. And you may even know that. And you've watched it happen to others, but you cannot help yourself. You're like compelled. And you think like, well, it'd be different for me, though. If I have these resources, if I have that kind of money, I want you to know for me, I'd be different. No. Look what the text says, verse 10. This, too... It's vanity. It is literally something that will let you down. It's meaningless. You see, the love of money never satisfies. Look at what he says in verse 11. Loving money compels consumption. He says, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? And basically what happens is wealth just encourages a greater and greater uh, focus on expenditures. And so what happens is, with the promotion comes the raise. With the raise goes, whoa! Almost in the same second that you learn of it, now what can I buy? Where does that come from? It's like built into our DNA. We're compelled. We need to consume more. It's like this vicious cycle. So the more you have, the more you want. The more you want, the more you buy. The more you buy, then you have a greater need. So now you have a need, so now you need more money. And it's just this vicious cycle. And I'll tell you what I just said is the lifestyle of millions of people. And there's just like no escaping of it. It's like what happens is the love of money, it breeds discontentment. There's a scholar by the name of David Henderson speaking on American culture. And let me give you a quote of what he says. Quote, America's favorite tourist attraction, beating out Disney World and drawing nearly 10 times as many people as the Grand Canyon is. Anybody know what it is? It's the Mall of America in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Do you know that? It's a shopping mall. It's complete with more than 400 stores. It's got an amusement park and a full-size roller coaster. And it brings in more people, by far, than Disney World. And he goes on to say, 
America is a land of compulsive shoppers. The mall is our home away from home and our national pastime. Why is that? Because when you love money, loving money compels consumption. Let me show you something else. Loving money increases worry. Look at verse 12. He says, The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is something very satisfying of working and laboring really hard, and when you finally hit that pillow at night and you just pass out and you can actually sleep a solid six hours or seven or eight or whatever you got, and you're like, whoa, there's something that's like, you feel good. You worked hard, you slept well. Whether you had a big meal before you ate, before you went to bed, or, you know, you don't have a lot of money, so it was pretty meager. It was you and that can of spam and macaroni that you had, but, you know, you went to bed and you, you had a satisfying night's rest. Not true for the individual who has money as their God. The rich guy... Well, he probably ate pretty nice. He tries to go to sleep, but he just keeps turning. He kind of thinks about embezzlement. He thinks about who's trying to take his money. He's thinking, well, what happens at that stock market? What's going on? What's going on in China? What's going on in Korea? What's going on in my own government? And you're just worried and consumed. Who's after me? Why does this person keep approaching me? What's the angle there? Who's trying to take my money? What's happened to it? You know what? I'm going to get up. I just want to make sure that it's still there. And you check on the computer. And what happens is you cannot sleep. You're, the reason that you're taking all these antacids and you're on these sleep aids is because you are so consumed by worry. And you know what happens? Loving money brings about increased worry. You know, what happens is that loving money fuels frustration. It all started out with you wanted to own a few possessions. Nothing wrong with that. This is the problem. When those possessions start owning you. And so Solomon writes, loving money increases worry. You know, uh, Henry Ford, that automotive uh, industry tycoon, made a ton of money. But he made this statement in the midst of all of his wealth and success. I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. You know, all of this, it just led to this compulsive worry in my life. It literally consumes. It's kind of like a fire. And the more that you fuel it, just the bigger it comes. And it just, it just overwhelms and it kind of consumes you. It's kind of like Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Why is that? You think like, wow, you got a million dollars. You should be smiling all the time, right? It's because it never satisfies. They did not believe the book of Ecclesiastes. And so what happens is you're just kind of consumed. Worry consumes you. It's affluenza. You've got sorrow. You're fighting lawsuits. And you've got sickness. And there's greed. And there's people that are after your money. And there's pain. And there's anger. And there's bitterness. And there's resentment. And there's lawyers. And there's these threats. And you're overwhelmed and consumed by what could happen to me and all my wealth. And it's kind of like this. America and our culture wants to put you on a hedonistic treadmill. It's kind of like if you, you go to the gym... And you're like working on a treadmill and you see all these other people and they're doing all the same thing. And that's what it is. Just keep pursuing this American dream. The love of money. Let it be your God. And everybody else is doing it. But it ends up making you miserable. It literally, it increases your worry. There is an, a legend about the king of Siam, which is now called Thailand. About the king of Thailand who apparently 
he had one courtier, a guy in his court that he just hated and despised. And um, gave it some thought and decided he would destroy him. And he did so by giving him a gift. In their culture, uh, albino elephants, white elephants, were actually sacred. But they're huge. And they require quite a bit of upkeep and a lot of time, TLC, and attention. So he gave one of these albino elephants to this courtier he despised. And this guy now found himself having to spend all his time and energy and money thinking about and taking care of this giant elephant because he can't do anything about it because it's sacred, right? And it eventually destroyed him. And I tell you about this because I want to ask you a question. Do you have any white elephants in your life? Is there something that literally consumes your time and attention and focus. You're just always thinking about it. Maybe it's your job or your appearance, or your home or your vehicle. Um, it, maybe it's just, just your money itself and just your investments and you just keep focusing and fixating upon this. I tell you, money isn't the problem. The problem is your heart. It's the white elephant gift. Is at the center of your heart and affections, is it really God... Or is it really something else? And so I just, by the way, you know, as we're kind of moving into this Christmas season, I want you to be well prepared. So if you get invited to a party and they say that it is a white elephant gift exchange, that's where its origins are. And so if you get invited to a white elephant gift exchange, you need to bring like a sick dog, okay? Or a, or a puzzle with a few missing pieces or give them the deed of some condemned property that's in the city and just give that to them and it'll consume them because that's what a white elephant gift is. And I'll tell you, there is someone that just specializes in white elephant gifts and that is the enemy of our souls. He wants you to get fixated and focused on anything or anyone but God himself. And money, loving money, it can bring all sorts of worry. Let me show you something else about loving money. Look at verse 13. Loving money promotes hoarding. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. So under the sun, you know, life lived like God doesn't exist. Notice he says there is something that is a grievous evil and it prom it's hoarding. And what does it do to the owner? I do not want you to miss verse 13 at the end. What does it promote? It brings hurt. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah. It's the word that's used for evil, misery, distress, injury. When you love money, it creates this clutching, grabbing kind of mentality. It's a hoarding mindset. It grips your heart. And you know what it does? It hurts you. Loving money, we think like, wow, it's going to bring all sorts of happiness. And this is what's this really going to make me feel fulfilled in life. It actually brings injury and hurt. Instead of maturing and becoming a gracious, generous individual, loving God, loving others, having the right perspective on money, wealth, and possessions, what happens is if you're loving money, it hurts you. It contorts you. It literally starts twisting your soul. You become a personification of Ebenezer Scrooge. And eventually you end up looking like it's, you know, I'm just bitter. I just, I, I'm grabbing, I'm hoarding, I've, 
I, my soul's contorted and twisted because the love of money has brought about a significant transformation in your life. And Solomon is giving this great warning. Loving money promotes hoarding. It's kind of like this. It's been said, He who has no money is poor. And he who has nothing but money is even poorer. You see, we show what we love by what we do with what we have. We show what we love by what we do with what we have. And for the guy or the gal who's made money their God, it leads to this contortion of soul and hoarding. And let me show you one other thing that Solomon highlights about what loving money does. Loving money leaves you bankrupt at death, if not before. Look at verse 14. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. So perhaps he was blinded by greed. This is what greed does. You don't think about what God would want you to do with your resources. It's all about, oh, I'm smart, I'm clever, and I've got sophistication. And, oh, here's the deal, man. No one knows about this. Man, I'm going to strike it rich. And you just go ahead and you plow forward. You didn't consult with God. You maybe not even found wise counsel because greed has a way of blinding you. And you just go and buy into it. And this guy does. And lo and behold, it was a bad investment. And he loses everything. Furthermore, he's got a son. He can't even support him. There's no estate. But there's no means of even taking care of him. You see, loving money is going to leave you bankrupt at some point. Some point. Either at death very possibly, even before it. Whether you have a little or a lot, just don't, don't get the idea like, well, it's only those people that have a lot of money and a lot of wealth. They're the ones that really got to be concerned about loving money. Actually, you don't have to have hardly any of it. And it can consume you and own you. It's a heart issue. Now, the question is, is money your God? And so, you know how we say you can't take it with you? We, we tell people that, right? You can't take it with you. That's right. It's, you're just temporarily managing it or temporarily mismanaging it. But you can't take it with you. On the flip side, you can invest it for eternity. On the flip side of the coin is the idea that you can actually use the resources that God has given you for the furthering of his work. You can give as an act of worship. Do so like at church or supporting missionaries or, or Christian causes. You can actually forward the advance. I mean, Jesus said as much. He says, you can really, literally lay up your treasure in heaven. Moth and rust aren't going to destroy it, but the question is, where are you going to make your investments? You know, it's really interesting. The only time in the Bible where God literally calls someone a fool is on this issue. You remember the guy who had the bigger barn mentality? You know, like, man, I got so much going for me. I just need to build bigger barns, you know? Not thinking about the kingdom, nothing about the Messiah, gospel, none of that. It's all about me because that's what money does. And so he decides to build these bigger barns. And you find it in Luke chapter 12. And then beginning in verse 19, it says this. And I, this rich man talking to himself, I will say to my soul, soul, this is so good. You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? You see, this man put all of his faith and his money 
And since that was his God, he needed to build a builder house for him. And, and so he did. But you see, he missed the one true God. He missed out completely. You see, if you're here today and you're like, how in the world did I end up here? And literally, your, money, your God is money. It would be a blessing if God halted you in your tracks and stopped your progress. Because it is taking you to destruction. Look what he says in verse 15. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You simply can't take it with you. It wants to own you. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Cecil Rhodes. He's a British, uh, was a British businessman, mining magnate, politician. Uh, he was the prime minister of the Cape Colony from 1890 to 1896. And at the end of his life, he cries out in remorse, and his words are recorded. You, you may have heard of uh, the Rhodes Scholarship. I know that you know, some of you wanted to get that. Maybe a couple of you folks actually got one. Rhodes Scholar? This guy. That's what they did with his money. And this is what he cries out when he's dying. I found much in Africa. Diamonds, gold, and land are mine. But now I must leave them all behind. Not a thing I've gained can be taken with me. I have not sought eternal treasures. Therefore, I actually have nothing at all. That's clarity. But yet he had to realize it at the very end of his life. And look what he says. Chapter 5, verse 16. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. He's literally, it's like a reverse Cinderella story. From riches to rags. It is a severe evil when loving money becomes your God. Lee Iacocca, the legendary car maker, wrote in his autobiography this statement. How telling. Here I am, in the midst of the twilight years of my life, still wondering, what's it all about? I can tell you this. Fame and fortune is for the birds. If you live for the pursuit of money, you will not be happy to where you end up. So is there any hope? I mean, like loving money, that's our culture. Is there any hope? I want you to know there is glorious hope. Look at verses 18 through 20. In stark contrast to verse 17, just dying in darkness, sickness, and anger. That's what loving money is going to take you. You might already see some of the symptoms. Look at verses 18 through 20. I got these like highlighted, marked, because, friends, this is life. Look at the contentment that God gives that overcomes the love of money. Look at verse 18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life, which God has given him, for this is his reward. In verses 18 through 24 times, you're going to see God reference in three verses. Why? Because God is the answer. The one true God, not money. And he says, look at God gives gifts of pleasure and work. It is good, literally meaning pleasant and agreeable. It is fitting 
This word could be translated beautiful. God gives gifts, food, drink, actually work for our enjoyment. And we are to enjoy it. He's given it to him. It's kind of like, why do you give uh, a birthday gift or a Christmas gift to your kid or your grandkid? Yeah, like one grandfather. He's making gifts for his, his kid, grandkid. Why? Because you love to see their face light up when they get that gift. It's especially meaningful if they actually use it beyond the five seconds after they unwrapped it, right? Like you see them reading the book or playing with the toy. It great, it's a great joy and delight. It was worth the sacrifice. I want you to know that's how God is. He gives gifts when we use them and enjoy them. And we're thankful to the giver, not just the token thanks, but like we are filled with gratitude and we enjoy the gifts. It brings great delight to the heart of God. It's like his heart just like lights up. Because I, he's blessing us so we will enjoy him and we'll actually enjoy the gifts. This is what he's, he's said time again and again as we've made our way. Three more times he's going to actually emphasize this exact same point. God gives gifts of pleasure and work. And what we're wanting to do is we're to find joy in just the common activities of life. Like just enjoy the meal. Let it bring gratitude to God. Enjoy your work. Now, you might be thinking like, whoa, work? The reason we got work is because Adam and Eve sinned and we were cursed. That's why I go to work. And my job, it is the epitome of the curse. I don't want you to know that's actually not true. Um, you know, work existed in the garden before Adam and Eve fell, before sin. Did you know that? Did you know that when you and I pass away and we enter into the eternal kingdom, we're going to be working. But it's a work that is meaningful. It is a work that is God-centered. Work becomes worship when the living God is the God of our lives. And we're like doing it for his glory. We're working in his strength. We're asking him for wisdom. We're all about him. And so he says, I want you to enjoy these things. And notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. That God not only gives these gifts, he also gives us the ability to enjoy them. Look at verses 19 and 20. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Did you see that? God actually gives you and I, his people, the ability to enjoy the gifts that he's given. We don't often think about that. And we oftentimes don't think that God actually is the one who's given us work, riches, and wealth. I mean, when it comes to like whatever you've got, much or little, you're like, you know what? I earned this. Man, I worked hard. I made it happen. And I earned all of this. And yes, you indeed worked. But did you know that God is the one who gave you the opportunity? Uh, if your heart's beating, that's God. You're breathing. Uh, you had the job. You live in a country that actually has an economy. All of these things, they're from God. He actually provides you gifts, wealth, riches, work. And, and this is the thing, not just the gift, but the ability to enjoy it. And that only happens... When you've got gratitude and you're living for his glory. 
And so often we're thinking, man, I just need these gifts. If I could just get this, this, and this. And then let's say you get some of that. But if you do not have the gift of being, finding enjoyment in it, man, it's of no use to you. And that's what he says in verses 19 and 20. God gives us the ability to enjoy it. He gives us minds that comprehend complexity. He gives us the ability to actually eat and eat food, enjoy it. I mean, like taste buds are wonderful. You ever get a cold where you can't taste your food and you're like, man, this is miserable. And then when your taste comes back, you're like, this is awesome, right? Bring on the brisket, man. I'll have another piece of that. Because why? Because now you can taste it. You see, God gave you those abilities because he wants you to enjoy them. Not just the gift, but the giver. He gives us feet that can run on this beautiful earth, eyes to be able to see complexity, grandeur, eyes to be able to hold even the simplest things that are taking place on this earth to say, wow, Lord, you are awesome and you are amazing. He gives us the capacity to enjoy these gifts. And he says in verse 20 that he'll not often consider the years of his life. It's not that he's not thinking about the deep things of life. It's rather that these dark realities of the human existence They do not overshadow the divinely bestowed blessings that come from him. It's a God-centered heart. The world is hard and it is difficult and it is painful. But God is good. He gives gifts. He even gives the enjoyment for those gifts. And so what you want to do, friends, you want to live. You want to enjoy life. Laugh more. Find the things that give you joy. Remember when you were a kid and like just something simple? Let your heart be filled with gratitude to God in your life, in your work. Thank God for it. Lord, how can I experience your joy in this situation? You might just be surprised by asking for his enjoyment, what he will give. Remember what he said in Ecclesiastes 2.25? For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? You want enjoyment? Of course we all do. Only way you can have it is with God. So don't be blinded by the smokescreen of loving money. It'll always disappoint. It's kind of like uh, Seneca. Remember the first century Roman philosopher? He was also a counselor for the emperor Nero. Seneca said this, Money has never yet made anyone rich. Do you want riches? Really? You want true riches? Then remember what Jesus said. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If you really want real riches, try switching kingdoms. Trust in Christ. Remember the gospel. I mean, this love of money, it's all part of our sinfulness and all the distortions that come with it. That's why God has sent us a savior. He addresses our sin. He is the just. He takes God's just wrath upon himself. He provides forgiveness and life so you and I can find contentment in God. And that's what he wants to offer his people. So invest more in the vertical dimension of your life. Learn how to give graciously and generously. That will take on a whole new dimension with your jobs. All of a sudden you realize what I'm doing is of even great significance, furthering a glorious kingdom. It's kind of like what the Wall Street Journal said. Money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven. And as a universal provider of everything except happiness. Friends, you and I were merely managers for a time of the resources that he has given. 
So use them for his glory. Use them wisely. Find even joy in the things that God has given you. Give generously. Live live with a vertical perspective in life. Because you cannot have God and money both being your master. You got to pick one. And who or what you love will determine how you live. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. You address head on the alternative God of money and all of its disappointments and destruction. It's just vanity. And if there is someone who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Jesus Christ, has never entered into his kingdom, but has been so ensnared by this compulsive drive for more and for financial riches. Now that you have their attention, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from myself and my sin. I see with clarity I've never had before. And this morning, I am trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, for forgiveness, for joy, for contentment. Lead me. And Lord, for all of us, fuel in us a greater love for you. Increase our faith. Thank you for the many blessings that you've given us. And thank you that you even give us the ability to enjoy these things. And maybe that's a step that we need to take. God, you supply. We give you the glory. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.